and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. Constable Scott Gibson has been a police officer for more than 20 years with a municipal department not far from Toronto, Ontario. Scott asked that I not use his department's name in this episode. Scott has been off work for almost four years now dealing with a workplace injury. He has been diagnosed with PTSD. Before his injury, Scott worked as a liaison officer with a local high school, befriending the principal in the process. He even attended his wedding. Unbeknownst to Scott, the principal was struggling with mental health issues and one evening ended his life. Scott was involved in the investigation and delivered the death notifications to the family, but the trauma affected him deeply. He hung on to work for a while. The injury didn't manifest itself overnight, but eventually he could not outrun the effects. His ability to sleep, parent, and work eventually began to deteriorate. Scott is now open about his experience and has come to terms with the fact that he's unlikely to ever wear a uniform again. His organization, PTSD Broken Sword, makes branded t-shirts, hats, and hoodies, raising proceeds for organizations that support first responders dealing with traumatic stress injuries. Scott's advocacy is genuine and down to earth. He's not preachy or academic in what he has to say. He's just a cop dealing with an injury as best he can and trying to shine a light on an important issue in law enforcement today. It's a gloomy St. Patrick's Day here in Vancouver. This is episode six with Constable Scott Gibson. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Scott, tell me why you got into police work. Uh, I got started because my uh, uncle uh, was a staff sergeant, and uh, I thought it would be a cool job to have. And I remember my parents telling me when I was little, I was about four or five. You know, my mom, she said, she said to me, I don't remember, you know, if you become a police officer, you, you could get hurt or killed. And, and apparently I said at the time, well, as long as I'm helping people, it doesn't matter. So at that point, my mother knew that that's something I wanted to do. And how old were you at this time? Uh, four or five years old. Oh, I don't no remember shit. the conversation. Okay. Yeah. Just my mom, my mom just telling me uh, what I said. So. so did you get into policing straight out of high school or what was your sort of pathway? So my pathway was, um, I liked law enforcement, but I also liked uh, the outdoors. So when I finished high school, uh, I took a little bit of a break, um, ha- uh, like half a semester off to save some money. I ended up at Sir Stanford Fleming up in Lindsay. Uh, and my whole um, plan was to do fish and wildlife and then be a conservation officer. That was part of what I kind of wanted to do as well. But I actually branched into cartography um, and then when I finished that, I ended up coming home and from there I went to Mohawk college and I, in, in Brantford and I took child and youth work. So that allowed me to work in, you know, jails and group homes and stuff like that. And is that what you ended up doing? Yep. I, so I worked full time for, uh, St. Leonard's in Brantford. And, um, from there I worked for Errol Youth Center in Hamilton and then I moved from, the corrections uh, standpoint into mental health where I ran two psychiatric wings at Lutherwood Coda in Waterloo. And and were you doing this as sort of a, a precursor to policing or, or had you sort of put the policing dream on, on the shelf for the time? I think it was just more to get um, experience because at a young age, I think it was 21, maybe even 20, I, I did some testing for police and didn't make it through. And part of that is, you know, at a young age, if they want some life experience. 
So knowing I could get it through working, you know, group homes, mental health, corrections, you know, and I could have a fairly decent paying job to support my family. That's what I did until I, I was hired when I was 28. And and what, what happened at 28 that, that got you in a mental health uh, corrections type work and into a police force? Just, it was finally the time to do it. You know, I had, uh, I had one uh, son and, um, you know, by the time I was hired, went away to police college. He was just turning two, um, so that it was just kind of a a good time to get into policing for you know a thirty year career. I wanted to kind of be done work before I was sixty, and um, the time was ticking. Uh, so, what year is this that you're going to police college? Two thousand two. Two thousand two. And where'd you do police college? Uh, in Elmer. Uh, that's where the Ontario Police College is. There's only one site. Uh, it's not like with it's kind of like with RCMP. They have depot out west there. We have in Ontario. We have um, the Ontario Police College. And how long is is that training course? So I'm just trying to think. I think it was 13 or 14 weeks. I can't I can't remember exactly how long I was there for. It was a while. Uh, luckily, I wasn't too far from home. We were like 45 minutes. But you got you, you picture that guys are from, let's say, Geraldton or uh, Sault Ste. Marie. They're a fair ways from home, so they don't get home all the time. At least if something was happening, you know, a birthday party or something going on with my son, I could, you know, pop home in the evening and pop back to the college for the next day. But is this is the standard that you're expected to sleep there? Is there is there dormitories? Yeah, dormitories. It's uh, much like a university dormitory. Right. Um, where we stayed. It was they're called pods. There's five rooms up, five rooms down, and um, one bathroom. You share a, um, a TV area, so you're watching TV, and the rest of your things are done out of that pod. So you go to mess hall. There's a big uh, cafeteria there. Um, the school's right on site, so we do everything there. And with police college in Ontario, I don't know what other provinces, and some of the misconceptions are you can't just go to police college. You can't pay to go there. You're hired by a police service first. And once you're hired by them and they clear you, your psychological, your background, all that stuff, then you go to police college. And back in the day, it was free, but they started charging for it. And I think when I went, I paid 2500 to offset the cost. And now I think the, the cost is fairly high probably closer to eight, eight or 10 grand or more for new recruits going. But you only get to go if you've got a job offer in your back pocket. Yes, exactly. Like you're, you're hired by let's say Toronto police service. And once you're hired, they, they enroll you and you go and you have to pay a certain fee. Uh, and I don't know what it is these days, but prior to me going, it was free. And I was one of the first couple of years where we, we had to kind of offset the cost and, and pay a little bit towards our tuition. So your 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 classmates or troop mates are from municipal police departments across the province. Yeah, and like with my uh, police service I work for, I mean I didn't have any of. There's only four of us there for my police service, but we didn't have any classes together because I think there was something like twenty or thirty uh, classes of, of recruits. So you know, in my class, I'd be combined with uh, smaller services like mine or. OPP, Durham Police, Toronto Police, stuff like that. Um, you had all different um, services in a class. 
and the curriculum is is police science and 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 shooting and drill and and everything in between. Well, I think it's it's, it's all um, covered by uh, the provincial government. So we we do a lot of law, uh, whether it's provincial or federal. Uh, we do do firearms. There's defensive tactics. Uh, there's physical um, uh, phys ed. So we have to do uh, a certain amount of swimming, running, uh, stuff like that. And when I was there, once a week. They got you out of bed at six in the morning and we had to go on a run. And lucky for me, I was there in January. So it was quite awful. Right. <laughs> is, is it, is it demanding? Is there an attrition rate? Uh, I mean, I mean, when I was at police college, I don't recall anybody quitting or, um, or being removed. I mean, I've heard stories where when they do your background check and then something comes up when you're there they dismiss you. Maybe right. it's not something that they want you to have in your background being a police officer, but there it seemed like everybody, you know, you're gung ho, you're, you're younger. Uh, and most people I could say, this is what their goal has always been. So, you know, y- y- there are times where if you want to go to a local bar at nighttime, you go and have some drinks or whatever. I spent most of my time studying, uh, because a lot of, a lot of the things we needed to know from law and you being a lawyer, you know, if I'm in court and I need to know, you know, what constitutes the law being broken in a certain case, I mean, we had to uh, know verbatim uh, mm-hmm. certain sections of the criminal code. Right. Just the, the nuts and bolts. Like, I mean, you know, uh, our powers of arrest, powers of arrest of a citizen, and then the facts and issues, we need to know that for everything, you know, whether it's assault, sexual assault. Um, fraud, mischief. We had to know the facts and issues and stuff. So there's a lot of memory work um, that we had to do. You've had the benefit of 20 years. Uh, yeah. Were you happy with the training you got? Did it give you the foundation for the next two decades of your career? Oh, for sure. I, I think that, you know, when you think of police college, you're getting the basics to be a police constable. Right. And then when you leave police college, you're paired up with what they call a coach officer. And in my service um you do three rotations um 35 days is in the rotation so you do three of those with a coach officer so they hone in on what you need help with or make sure you understand everything and i think with the basic training you're giving because it is called basic training um it gives you the basics of policing now once you're working for a short while or depending on how your service is set up you do get extra training depending on the need for your service or your your shift you're working for. Right. But it was you say it was 13 weeks of, of the on-campus classroom side of the training? Yeah, and don't quote me on that. I'm just it's been it's so sure. long. I sure. It's 13 or 14 weeks, right. I think. Yeah. It could be longer. I'm just I can't remember back that far. But you know, but three or four months. Yeah. Yep. It was like a little over three months. So right. and uh the municipal department you ended up working for, uh, how big a department is this? I would say it's medium size. Yeah. I would say um, the last time I checked, I think we have about 150 or 160 uniform officers. Yep. Uh, it could be more now. I've been off uh, work for a few years. Uh, but we're a medium-sized uh, service. Um, we have a lot of what the bigger services have, but there's sometimes we need to have bigger services come in and, and help us do whether we have a, you know, um, a standoff where we need 
uh, we have an ERT team where we are, but let's say we need an entry team. So maybe we'll, we'd have to call uh, a service in from a half hour away or 45 minutes away to assist in doing the entry because that's their train in that and our guys weren't. Um, and again, our guys can be training that now over the past few years. I don't know if that was where they went, but we can use bigger services. Um, the service I uh, work for uh, now has canine. Prior to having canine, we use uh, OPP because right. they had canine. We didn't have canine. So in policing, um, we use other services to help us um, for bigger cases, let's say. So what were the sections you were working during your career? So I started off as a constable and then um, uh, it, it, I was lucky or unlucky. Let's when say look at it. Um, when I first started, my platoon was a rather older platoon, uh, meaning, you know, 15, 20 years in, they're not wanting the small courses. So I, again, whether it's lucky or unlucky, um, I get called and say, Hey, do you want to do the breath tech course? So, so I became a breath tech and then eventually, uh, the head breath tech for my service. Uh, and then. You know, another course comes up. Hey, do you want to do uh, forensics? Uh, it's seen the crime officer. It's the lower level from a forensics officer where you're called out to do pictures of break and enters or you're doing pictures at a post-mortem to help out um, forensics. So, yeah, I took that. So each of these courses, when we talked about when you go to basic uh, police college, basic training, these are add-on courses. So, you know, with the breath tech at the time, it was a two week course uh, taught off site uh, where I took my course. I took my course down in Niagara Falls. And then when we switched over to the new intoxilizer, I had to go again to learn it, to teach it. And that was taken at um, uh, OPV headquarters in Aurelia. So what does a breath tech do for, for people who, who maybe have never had that experience? Uh, how does that work? So if you're if you're arrested uh, for impaired driving, let's say you're in an accident or you go through a ride check, and the officer has grounds to arrest you for uh, impaired driving, that means you can actually drive or impaired operation. You could just sit in your car. They would then bring that person back to a police service uh, where the intoxilizer is, and my job as a breath technician would be to administer the breath test through the intoxilizer. Right. And this is done at the detachment. Yeah, the detachment. I've heard um, that some services, and I don't know if they still do it. I know like for border services, because uh, we're close to Buffalo, uh, the New York border, uh, and border services, RCMP, and, I, and Niagara Regional Police, they had a um, RV. So they, they would have, they could do it right on site at the border and you know, their big times are Buffalo Bills games when people are crossing the border going back and forth or sporting events. So I, I was told that they could do it on site in a um, RV and that way they're not transporting people back um, to the station. And with that, that's perfect because time is everything. Uh, when you're uh, charged with impaired, it's, it's on us to get you tested as soon as possible. But if it goes beyond a certain time, we may lose that impaired. Right. Charge. Uh, so did forensic work or, or crime scene investigation end up, you know, taking up a large part of your career? 
Well, yeah, you're still doing the constable job. I mean, so you're, like I said, lucky or unlucky. So you're a constable. So, you know, after I got the senior crime officer's job, then it was like, hey, do you want to be a coach officer? And a coach officer is that guy who has the rookies from Leeds College ride with them for three rotations. So now you're 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 doing your job. Now you're you're coaching a younger officer, male or female. Then you get the call outs for, you know, break and enter, or they send you to do a, a postmortem pictures. And then, you know, you get an impaired, so you're doing that test as well. So you're wearing all these different hats. And it's, it, you know, policing, the best way to describe it is policing is careers inside of a career. Right. And I'm glad I did what I did because I, I think I would have got bored with it. And then the final course I was uh, able to get was uh, a negotiator course. And, you know, people call them hostage negotiators, but they're negotiators. Um, majority of the negotiator's job is to negotiate with, you know, in my experience, um, people who are held up in a house that want to want to hurt themselves or kill themselves. And our job is to, you know, speak with them and try and get them to give themselves up without them hurting themselves or, or us getting hurt. And did you ever have to put that skill set to the test? Yeah, once I was part of one um, before I went off. And, you know, it's a, it's a good feeling. I mean, most most people who are who are held up, in my experience in my town, you know, sure, they might be saying they want to hurt themselves. They might be scared they're in trouble. But it's just, just nice to know that you can, it might take hours, but talk to them and, and get them to, to give themselves up to the people who are waiting outside. Did your career take you into the courtroom a lot? Is it, you know, as a breath tech or otherwise? Yeah, you know, I, uh, funny story, and I'll just, it's, it's kind of antidotal. So when I first started um, as a, a cadet, so when I got back from police college, you have to go around to different sections of the police service and get like a day's training. So they'll, they'll put you in records. So you see what, what the records clerks do. You go to stores, you go to drugs, you go to intelligence. And then you go to court. So I remember going to court and there was a lawyer there who I knew because he's from my hometown and I'm from here. And I had a, a chat with him and he actually sat down with me and he said to me, Scott, he says, my job as a, a lawyer is not to go after you personally. Now, I've had cases where lawyers try and go after you personally to get you off your game. But this lawyer says, my job's not to go after you personally, but if you leave me a hole, I got to jump through it. Right. So that resonated with me um, for my career. I mean, I, someone's asked me before, I bet you I've only testified in criminal court in my career, probably under 10 times. Because, mm. you know, as a lawyer too, like if, if, if I'm doing good notes and, you know, um, they, they seem to know who the police officers are, who, you know, do good cases or don't do good cases. So I, I never had an issue with being called to court a lot. The odd time I'd get call f called for clarification um, for, you know, something I seized at a um, scene where I had to, like, say, I had to lift a, a print off a window or something. But for the most part, um, I testified a lot in uh, provincial court. And that's, we, you know, it's provincial, we call it traffic court. 
So you have people who are fighting, uh, you know, speeding tickets or accidents, um, stuff like that. And that's where you, you know, most officers, when I talk to the younger officers, I always said, you want people to fight your provincial tickets because that's where you get your experience. Yeah. So if someone, someone's fighting on a speeding ticket and, and sometimes in, in, in traffic court, the provincial prosecutor is a little tougher than the crown prosecutor in a federal case. Right. right. So, and I, you know, and, you know, I said, this is where you get your experience. And that was what I was told too. So if you can handle yourself in the stand in front of a justice of the peace and a provincial prosecutor, and you do, you do tons of them. You probably do five or six a month minimum in your career. That time where you have to testify, where someone, you know, was an attempt murder or a sexual assault. Yep. Your experience in testifying, you're going to sound a lot better, and you're not going to be as nervous. Because even to this day, if you put me on the stand, yeah, I still have that nervousness because you're 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 on the hot seat sure and you you know you want to make sure that the evidence that you collected or you observed is brought to the judge or the jury in a proper way where they can say yeah you know i i this you know reasonable doubt is this guy's guilty or this girl's guilty it's an uncomfortable experience i mean <clears throat> if your defense counsel your or i guess a self-represented person in um tra- traffic court you're a police officer yep. there, you're sitting there under oath, you're giving evidence, you're looking at a judge, a justice of the peace. Uh, it's a weird feeling. You're sitting in the dock or maybe you're standing. You got the fluorescent lights sitting there. It's not It's not a natural experience, I don't think, for anybody. No, no. And I, I, I'll give you a funny antidotal story about my first time testifying in criminal court. It was on a forcible confinement case. I was a, a brand new officer probably in my first year. And the judge that was sitting... Uh, in the court is known for his quirky comments and, and funny whips back. So I go to court and I'm, I'm nervous. It's my first time testifying. And the crown attorney who was the young crown attorney uh, that day, who I know, I know quite well. Now he stands up in court and he says, judge so-and-so I want you to know that it's constable Gibson's first time testifying in criminal court. Damn. And the judge looks over his glasses with a smile on his face and he says, well, congratulations, Constable Gibson. <laughs> so, so I was more nervous getting on the yeah, stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. guess that's why you get the reps in, in, in traffic court, right? It's just do yeah. it, do it, do it. Repetition. Yeah, that's your, that's your best bet. And I mean, even doing your notes. So, you know, young officers, that's the big thing. You're working on notes, you're working on make sure we can read your writing because yep. sometimes we, you know, we got to make sure you, you can read it. But if you're taking notes at an accident scene at a collision, you know, I always said take copious amount of notes because it's going to help you. You don't know if the evidence that you're writing on your book right now is going to be something, you know, two months from now, that's going to be a big issue or you're at least writing your notes for these smaller offenses where, you know, it wasn't an attempt murder or sexual assault, you're getting used to putting the proper stuff in your notes. That's right. And again, it goes down to repetition. Your department a work hard, play hard, hard kind of workplace? Yeah, you know, our service is a good service. They, um, we have a hockey team and um, a lot of times platoons will do things um, by themselves. So, you know, they might grab Buffalo Bills tickets or they might grab Toronto Blue Jays tickets. And a lot of that is just 
based on platoons because the problem is when you're on um a service we have five platoons you couldn't do anything as a full service because you've always got people working yeah that's right that's right so a lot of times the platoons on their you know days off they'll they'll get a a bunch of tickets for a, a blue jays game or bills game or or tie cats game and, and go and check it out um the bigger stuff you know you know christmas levies um it's kind of like a military type thing where uh the christmas levy retirees and current serving officers will go and have like a christmas drink type thing and then we have a a christmas party for uh the children and that's not through the service per se it's through our association because police services can't have unions but we have associations which are pretty much the same thing different name at some point uh in your career you started to struggle with mental health yes i did yeah i think that you know if i have to pinpoint it and i've you know been off now almost four years you know there was a time i want to say 10 or 12 years ago that i was coaching a young officer we almost set hit head on uh, on purpose we didn't get hit it was just a, a few inches away from getting hit i was off for a bit then just and my big thing was I couldn't sleep, having nightmares and whatnot. And I think part of the issue too is when I started, you look at 20 years ago and you're working with the older officers, you know, suck it up, you know, just deal with it. Uh, let's go for a drink, you know? And I find, you know, I would go to like a platoon party or I, I would go uh, once a month, we would have, um, after an afternoon shift, we're done at midnight, we go for some pizza and wings and some beers. You know, I stopped doing that because it wasn't good for my mental health. And what people don't understand too, is mm-hmm. it's good mental health and bad mental health. And, you know, if you're sitting with a group of people and, you know, you and I talked prior to this, it's no different than lawyers sitting with lawyers or firemen sitting with firemen or police sitting with policemen. You're going to talk to war stories. And, you know, part of that is trying to get away from it. So I struggled back then. I got some help. Um, and at the time, uh, WSIB, the mandate wasn't really there. And they they shut down my claim that I had uh, situational PTSD. So I ended up having to, I had to burn my, um, my sick time. So, you know, got some help I needed, went back to work. And then uh, a few years back, I had a... a close friend, really close friend, commit suicide. And, um, you know, he was a principal of a high school. Uh, and when I was stationed in the high school, so I, I did that twice as well. That's how we got to know each other quite well. And we, you know, I was at his wedding, you know, he'd come to my cottage and stuff like that with his spouse. And um, unbeknownst to a few of us that were friends with him, he had more going on uh, mental health wise than we knew. And how we found out was he he committed suicide uh, overnight one day. And because I was stationed in high school at the time, high school at the time, his sister was a teacher there. So ultimately fell on me. So I did the majority of the investigation with the help of a few people that uh, went to the house and and whatnot. But I had had to deliver the death notifications to his family. And again, these are the family members that I would sit, have, you know, a beer with or sit around a campfire with. But now you're you're putting on the hat where you're saying, 
you know, your, your brother's dead. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I hung on for a bit and, you know, I was in the high schools and, and again, the high schools I was at, he wasn't at the high school I was stationed at. He had just moved to a different high school, but in the same board. So if you think about trying to get your head around things that day will always stick in my head because once school ended, I kept my uniform on. I came home, had a quick bite to eat. And then I had to go to the football games because we, we manned the football games at nighttime just to make sure everybody's safe. Right. So, so you walk into the football games and his friends who are my friends who work with him, you're getting, you know, are you okay? What happened? And, you know, we, we can't talk specifics because of confidentiality, how he, the, the, the mode of how he killed himself yeah. in my head. I knew how he did it, but I couldn't share that with people. Right. And, you know, that whole night for four hours being approached by probably 20, 30 people because the word gets out that I had, I investigated it and they knew I was friends with them. Yeah. So that, that, that made it hard. And it, it got to a certain point where I just, I got kicked over the cliff. And I think the big thing, if I can impress upon anybody listening, I guess a couple things. Um, stigma is a bad thing. Um, in order for me to get help. And I think I got help quicker than most people would because how did you know you need help, Scott? I mean, when, when did you realize you weren't just having a bad week or that, that this wasn't just going to roll over you? Uh, It was your friends, family, coworkers, or did you just know, did you wake up one day and said that like, I'm not sleeping anymore. I'm not functioning. Yeah. Yeah, It was me. I mean, I couldn't sleep. Um, And and on top of that, you're trying to be a parent, right? You know, I've, I've been I've got four kids and you're trying to be a parent. And I mean, my kids luckily were somewhat knowledgeable that I had gone through this, but you just get to a certain point where you you get kicked over the edge. And with my background in mental health, before I was a police officer, the stigma was still there because I, if you told me 20 years ago that I was going to be on this side of it, I would have laughed at you. But at least they knew what mental health treatment was like. So I sought it out. And the big thing with with getting treatment for mental health, you got to deal with the medical um, side of it. So the unlucky uh, part of me, my doctor, um, just said to me, well, you don't need any medication. Just go work out. Right. So for a year, year and a quarter, uh, it festered. Um, couldn't sleep at nighttime and, you know, then you turn to, you know, having a couple of drinks before you go to bed because sure. we know, we know with, you know, having uh, a few drinks, it, it cuts down on your REM sleep. So you're not going to have those nightmares. So at that point I had to go and advocate for myself. And that's the second thing I was going to say, stigma, the word stigma and then advocate are the two biggest things when you're dealing with a mental health issue, whether it is PTSD, which I have, and coming to terms with it, I advocate for myself. Um, the chief of police um, in my city right now, I got a hold of him. I let him know what I needed. He started advocating uh, as well. And we were able to get myself into CAMH, into an 18-week program. And even the psychologist, the OT and the psychiatrist, didn't know how I got in so quick. They said, like, you must have pulled some strings to get in because there was a huge waiting list. So advocate, advocate, advocate. And then when that stops, I had to advocate again. And I'm in another program now that is not timed. 
Because what happens is you you fall between the cracks. And I know with my journey, you know, you're, you're dealing with one therapist and then, you know, they're great, but then they have aspirations in their career field as well. So they move on to something else. So then you get a new therapist, then you do the dance with them for a bit to see if you trust them. And then that person leaves. And it's no, it's not a negative towards the mental health system. And I know in my conversations, they're quite short as well uh, in mental health. And, you know, people are coming and going. And we know with doctors, which psychologists are and psychiatrists are, a lot of times they leave once they have the experience because they open their own private clinic, they're making two or three times as much as they were working for a provincial clinic or a clinic that's um, sanctioned by the WSIB. You know, and we were talking about this earlier about, you know, lawyers and, and police officers, you know, we're, we're very incestuous in who we hang out with and who we drink with and who we swap war stories with. Do you think that's healthy? Do, do you think that is on balance a good thing or a bad thing if you're if you're struggling? I'm 50-50 on that. You know, the jury's out right now. And the reason why I say that is I have, I have a really good close friend who I was partners with. And I have another buddy who worked in a different platoon and section, but we're friends now. Uh, I think it's important there's a cross-section of your friends. You need to have enough people there, one or two, that understand. So, you know, Dan, if you came to me after a bad day in court and you said this, this, and this, I don't really... I'm going to understand why you're upset about that or why a judge said this to you. Right. But if you had a lawyer friend and you said, look, you know, judge Smith said to me this today, and this is his ruling and you're pissed off. Someone like-minded can relate. They say, get it. Yeah. Can relate. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think, you know, when I was a, a new officer, I patted myself with all police officers because that's what you're kind of taught, right? Like, you know, that, that blue brotherhood and you'll, they'll take care of you and, and whatnot. But the, go ahead. I was going to say, do you, do you worry that in our, in our line of work, which is albeit, you know, lawyering and, and policing are, are different in a lot of ways, but they're both high conflict jobs yep. and they're both jobs where we tend to interact with people who have had or are having a bad day or a bad week or got themselves in a real jam do you think yep. we, we become too cynical or we lose a, a bit of empathy? And, and that, that makes it harder when we when we go to our professional colleagues with problems because we're so used to people coming us to us with problems. Yes, I, I think we do lose a, a lot of empathy. I mean, I've I always say said when if you saw me 20 years ago working uh, in mental health versus now, even how I raise my children, you know, like you know, my, my son could walk to the store. No, no, you're going to walk with your friend or, or your sister. You know, we're, we're cautious about a lot of things because we see, we see the negative side of society. Yeah. And even in policing, there's conflict because to be quite honest, a lot of police officers are A-type personalities. Of course. And that's not a bad thing, but we are hired for a reason. We're hired to make decisions. Right. Take but control of the situation, right? Yep. Show leadership. Don't show a lot of vulnerability. Yeah, you, yeah. But if you have a have an issue where you need to kind of negotiate with another officer or, or two officers, because of our take initiative and our A type personalities, 
try and sell your point. It's 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 tough because because most officers have had their minds made up, and that's that. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of guys who think um, they've taken the red pill. They know they know what the truth is. They know what's happening. They know who's telling the truth and who's not. Who yeah. what's right, what's wrong, yeah. and and look, it's in my line of work too. Um, trying to tell opposing counsel sometimes that their point of view maybe is not correct or there's another way to approach this problem can feel like banging your head against the wall. And that, that comes again with lawyers, the same as police. I think, you know, you're kind of take charge. Like you have to make decisions. You have to be sure of yourself. Yeah. And that's not always a negative thing, but sometimes it creates conflict. Sure. And if you're feeling like you've been, like you've been injured or you're having trouble concentrating or your confidence has been shaken, you know, like what we're talking about today, you've got PTSD. Uh, a lot of our colleagues may not be sympathetic to that or, or until they've been there, they can't relate. Well, and I think we, we I just talked with a friend too. Um, I know we discussed this before the interview uh, a week ago, sir, ago, but I have done some reading where they, they say about 85% of um, emergency personnel, military, fire, have some sort of PTSD going on because let's face it, we see things that people shouldn't see. Sure. And we do things that people don't normally do. You know, when a fire's, you know, going, you run the other way, we're running to the fire, right? So so when you look at that and then you look at the, the stigma standpoint too where Policing, you want to move up. Uh, they they want to be, you know, that that solid uh, male or female cop. You don't want to admit there's something wrong, and that's what I try and say to the younger officers. That first time you go to a you know a baby death, and you're not feeling great afterwards, don't sit on it. Use the AP program and talk to somebody, because that backpack or that glass of water gets fuller and fuller and fuller and sooner or later you're dealing in a situation like I have. What resources are available now or were available in your department or Ontario for police officers who have decided that they're struggling with a with a workplace injury? So it's it's quite good. So they, we have an EAP program, an employee assistance plan, and I think that's all through Canada. Um depending if your employer has it. So with our EAP program we have numbers that we can call uh, in our policies and when we call and we want a referral our employer doesn't know it's me going when you call the referral agency you're assigned a number so when the service gets billed you know you could be um patient number one two three four five so they don't know it's you going so that it kind of makes guys feel better about going we also have a uh committee it's a peer support committee and um, they're chosen um, by they're decent people. Uh, they can keep things confidential, um, well liked. So that's another um, avenue that we could use. My only concern with that is, and I don't care what profession you look at, you know, a factory, policing, fire, ambulance, lawyers, things leak out. Sure. And that wouldn't be something that I want wanted to use. Um, the good intentions are there, but for for major things, you don't want things leaking out. Yeah. But you have taken, I guess, what, what you said earlier, you know, the stigma of PTSD and have now become a bit of an advocate on, on social media and other, and other places 
for officers and first responders getting treatment? I, you know, I have. I, I started, um, it's called the PTSD Broken Sword. And we started on Instagram October 23rd. So Of last year? Yeah, last year. So, so it hasn't, hasn't even been a year yet? No. So when you when you have PTSD, things affect you a lot differently than other people. So that was October 23rd. I started October 12th. I had a friend who was 42 years old. Um, good friend, uh, Mary with kids. He dropped dead at work, massive heart attack and died. So with PTSD, you take things a lot harder. Um, so I thought I want to do something to try and help people out. So October 23rd, I started a site on Instagram. It's PTSD.BrokenSword. And we're up to about 2,800 followers now. And it's just nice antidotal stuff and things that make people smile. But I'm surprised with the amount of people who contact me that say, you know, I was suicidal, thanks. That really helped me out last week. Or, hey, can you get me a phone number for uh, a counseling service in Alberta? So we're not doctors. We're not whatever, but we can help people out. And even simple things. I, I had a guy from Arizona, uh, ex-Marine, or he, he's a Marine, but he's no longer uh, serving, uh, was suicidal. And he said things were bad at home. And I simply said to him, do you go for a walk? Do you ever go for walks? And he's, he's like, never thought of that. So he goes for a walk and he messages me later saying, thanks, you know. And what people have to understand is when you're in the forest, in the thick of things with PTSD, you don't see the trees in front of you. Yeah. Sometimes it's that, you know, funny um, quote or a, a funny story or a compassionate ear that says, hey, go for a walk. And and people remember that. So we, we, we got going with that. We're going really good. And from there, um, we partnered up. And I, I wanted to keep it... Um, not in Canada, I wanted it North American. So I met a, a friend in Oregon named Chad Lutz, and he started up a group called the PTSD Ranch, and they're on Instagram as well. And he caters to, I, I would say there's a lot of military and fire, because his background was, he's a military medic and a, a, a firefighter. So he gets a lot that end where I get a lot of police because of my background. And then we then linked up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, with uh, Jeff and Laura Elvish with Blue Tartan Stables. And they have equine therapy there. So he's a 29-year uh, police veteran with the Thunder Bay Police. And he went through his own little uh, ordeal a few years ago. It wasn't little, it was an ordeal. And he's got himself healthy, healthy so he's helping people. So with the website we have now, www um ptcbrokensword.com we're making hoodies hats uh you can purchase online and all the proceeds one month go to the ptsd ranch in oregon and the next month to the blue curtains deals in thunder bay ontario to help with their programs wow that's great and how's how's the reception being at your former workplace with you being at the forefront or or being so open about these issues you know to be quite honest we go back to what you said earlier you're kind of like the 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 black sheep when right. you're off. So yeah. I've got I've got one close friend who's working and still with the service, and one friend who's off, uh, and no one has anything to do with do with me. And, and funny, I ran into my friend who I'm close with when I was shopping yesterday. Actually, I haven't seen him in a while, 
at the grocery store and we had that conversation. It's funny how, you know, in policing, they talk about the, the blue brotherhood. We'll take care of you. And we're, we're a big blue family. Well, it's, it's, it's really not that way. You know, um, I would, I would have thought, you know, being off sick, like I am now when I wasn't sick before and on duty, I have buddies who are off, you know, from police shootings or whatever. And I call and check up on them. Just, Hey, how you doing? That's all. You don't see that now. And I don't know if it's just in our career or it is how society is going. So I don't know if we'd see that with lawyers or firefighters as well. We just know, you know, I think society is changing people's, views of compassion and empathy have changed greatly and they're striving more to get ahead and move up. I'm picturing it's probably hard for some of your colleagues to know how to reach out or, or if that's appropriate. I mean, if you're struggling with, with injuries you suffered as a police officer, you know, maybe some of them are, are self-conscious about calling you out when they're still in uniform. I, uh, yep. I, I imagine it's hard. It's hard to grapple with, with the space that you need or the uh, confidentiality you need. Yeah. Uh, you know, playing devil's advocate here, I, I, I think people probably aren't equipped with the tools to know how to reach out to people uh, that, that are suffering in the way that you are. Yep, I, I think you're right. And I think the other, the flip side of that too is you're a broken toy. Right. So right. I think that's part of it as well. And you're never going to know the percentages of, they're afraid to reach out versus they don't want to reach out to be painted with the same brush you're painted with type thing. So, you know, that's what you struggle with. But the good thing for me is I've, you know, I, I pretty much keep to myself. I've got um, a different friends group now uh, th that are older, not in policing. And that just does me a lot better. You know, these people know why I'm off. They don't ask questions. They don't ask war stories. Yeah. And we sit around and talk about pitching or football or travel or whatever. And, you know, I'm not talking about they own a bakery and how's the bakery doing or or my buddy who's a teacher and, and how's teaching going. We're just, we're friends. And I think that's one of the big things when you're struggling with PTSD, you have to really look at your friends group. You know, is it beneficial? You know, do you need those friends that, hey, I'll come over with a bottle of rye or a case of beer. No, you don't need those friends. You need those friends that'll have a sit and have a coffee with you. You know, so that's that's what I had to do in the last few years is weed out people that weren't healthy for my journey. So speaking of your journey, Scott, what's next for you? Are, are we are we hoping to see you back in uniform someday, or is is mental health advocacy the future for you, or, or what's what's on your horizon? Now, I'm, I'm being told I'm not going back. That's by the uh, medical personnel dealing with me. I know. I mean. I was told this about a year ago. I really had a hard time with it because if you look back, you know, I don't know about your past where you always want to be a lawyer, but you worked so hard to get it. And then it's not for anything you did wrong, but you can no longer do it. And I couldn't see myself uh, as a police officer anyways, um, but it took me a few months to wrap my head around it. Um, yeah, I I don't know what's next. I think the advocacy is is good. Um, you've contacted me with your podcast. I did one a couple weeks ago, um, which I enjoy doing. And then just yesterday I was, um, contacted by Rogers Cable. They want to do one with me in regards to the uh, PTSD and advocacy. Cause I think 
we can talk about PTSD now. We can talk about mental health. And it's not as bad as it was six months ago, a year ago, two years ago. And I mean, not giving Bell Canada a plug or anything, but with their Let's Talk. I, I think that was a huge thing to splash up on the TV screen. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and get, I, getting any sort of, of sunlight or attention on these issues is huge. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so we'll see what happens. I, I want to get healthier. I'm not 100%. Um, believe it or not, doing these podcasts, and I, you know, I've talked with my team who deal with me. This is good exposure therapy for me as well, talking about it. Um, it, it really does me a great deal of help talk to people like you. Fantastic. Well, Scott, look, thank you very much for your time this morning, and, uh, and thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it, and thank you for what you're doing. That's it for episode six. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Constable Gibson. If you like what you heard or you want to learn more about Scott's advocacy and his organization, uh, look for him on Instagram or at ptsdbrokensword.com and pick up a uh, sticker, slap it on the truck or grab a hoodie and wear it to the office. Next week on the show is Superintendent Jim Elliott, the officer in charge of the RCMP Critical Incident Program here in British Columbia. That means we'll be talking ERT, bombs, canine units, and all sorts of the other toys that the RCMP put to use keeping us safe. Until then, I'm Dan Coles, and we're under reserve.